0: Building Something Out of Nothing is brought to you by LiftFund. For over 25 years, LiftFund has backed entrepreneurs who build something out of nothing by providing responsive insights and small business capital when others aren't able to. If you need help launching your passion into a reality, visit LiftFund.com today. Building Something Out of Nothing is brought to you by Geekdom. Geekdom is the largest co-working space in the city with the focus of building downtown San Antonio one startup at a time. Visit Geekdom.com today to schedule a free tour. What's up, guys? This is Eddie Laughlin, co founder of Shotgun House Coffee Roasters, and you're listening to Building Something Out of Nothing, a small business podcast right here in San Antonio. Today's guests are Boyan Kalucevich and Randy Ward, co owners and proprietors of Dorchel Distilling and Brewing Company in San Antonio. We sit down in front of our first live audience at San Antonio Startup Week and chat about the origins of the company and how it all started. What sets Dorchel's unique spirits apart from other craft distillers, the funding, planning, and build-out of their South Town Distillery, the addition of the brewery a few years later, various awards and accolades, and how Boyan took his family origins and spirit-making and built Dorchel Distilling and Brewing, Texas' first craft distillery in the heart of San Antonio. Enjoy. All right, guys. Thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is Eddie Laughlin. I'm co-owner of Shotgun House Coffee Roasters and the host of Building Something Out of Nothing podcast. This is our first live event at San Antonio Startup Week, so thank you guys for coming out. My guests today are Boyan Klusovic and Randy Ward, co-founders, owners, proprietors of Torchol Distilling and Brewing uh, right down on South Flores. I assume a lot of y'all have been down there. There we go. By the way, just out of sheer curiosity, how many people have heard or listened to the podcast? One. All right two, three. For anybody listening, there's about 50 people in here. So Um, how many people have heard of Shotgun House Coffee Roasters have been there? All right, a few more, a few more hands. And how many people have heard of Dorchel? I assume, okay, everybody in here. So you didn't have to scream louder for them, but Chris couldn't make it. He had to drive to Austin for a work trip. So uh, it's just going to be us today. But what are we drinking here? Hi, wheel Betty. So we just, these are just brand new cans, right? That's what's
1: going on with this. September 1 was the rollout, and uh, they're here with us today. This is beautiful, man. Who, who designed this? There's a local firm up the road, uh, Heavy Heavy. They were the uh, creative directors on the uh, rollout, and okay. um, uh, it's done well. Shout out. We no, no, shout out to Heavy Heavy. Another cool. San Antonio brand. Oh, also shout out to Game Day Media. This is going to be
0: not only videoed, and I'll be putting it on YouTube, but it's going to be on the podcast. Um, being recorded by Game Day Media today. So thank you very much. Great beer. Obviously, the beer came a little bit later on with Dorchel. Dorchel just founded in 2013, but the idea kind of came about back in 2003, Boyan, when you and Chris were at the University of Texas together. Were were you in a dorm? What kind of happened there? I know even the story is like before you could drink, y'all would talk about this like fantastical idea one day opening up a distillery like a craft distillery, which is like super specific to me. I feel like every white dude in college ever was like drinking their keystones and, bong and beer and thinking, yeah, man, we'll we'll open a brewery one day. But uh, yeah, what was the common thread you had with distilling? That's interesting to me.
1: I don't know what the statute limitation for bootlegging is, so I uh, I'll refrain from telling the original story. But uh, it happened uh, many moons ago, and uh, my grandpa would always send booze um, to my dad. We folks immigrated stateside Sweet. in uh, the early 90s, so um, the, the family product-making component remained in Serbia. So um, uh, every summer, we'd, parents would send us back to visit grandparents. We'd spend the summer in Serbia, and on the way back, there'd be some uh, unmarked soda bottles wrapped in saran wrap right. and... Uh, kids' clothing, because we were kids at the time, sure. um, that would make the trek, uh, you know, stateside. And um, we landed in Chicago for one of those, uh, uh, what do you call them, uh, layovers. And uh, clearing customs, The um, we got randomly selected for a baggage check. Nice. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I was 14, my brother was 10, it might have been 16 and 12, but in the in the luggage... There were some two-liter Coke bottles right. um, that had this clear liquid in that didn't look like Coke or Sprite, and it was just you two traveling. It was together. us two, yeah. Okay, it was yeah. Two small so children, so you can't explain that.
0: It's, it's difficult too.
1: The the uh, customs guy kept calling it shlibovits, which is a plum brandy, Right. and uh, I was very matter of fact, saying no, because it was an apricot brandy. But he was simply <laughs> he was simply categorizing all liquor from the Balkans as shlibovits, because he was in Chicago and there's a large uh, immigrant population from that region in the, in the, uh, in the city. So, um, he finally cracks open the bottle. He smells it and obviously it's alcohol, right. but he wasn't alleging we were bringing alcohol over. He was alleging we're bringing shuvits over, which was not true. So you corrected him. I not
2: was correct. correcting
1: him. Uh, he wasn't having any of it. He confiscated it. And then he said, um, you know, don't, I don't want to talk to your dad. I don't want him coming to claim it. You know, this is illegal. You know, you can't bring in booze. Right. And I go, well, it's two bottles per passenger. And he looks at me and he goes, How old are you? And you know, 14, 14 15, 16. Yeah. And he goes, Over the age of 21. So um, our two liter, you know, two bottles per passenger did not work. The booze got confiscated. My grandfather was heartbroken. And um the joke was, you know, if you want to continue doing this, you're gonna to have to distill stateside. Right. You know, fast forward 20 years, and you know, we got to do that. But um, the original seed was planted pretty early on, more from a necessity because um, bootlegging is against the law. And um, and uh, I just found a, a a dummy like me who thought that would be a good idea. And right. uh, that was Chris. So um, I often blame him for everything we got ourselves into. It's Had he not been around, we, I probably wouldn't have done it. And he says, had I not been around, he wouldn't have done it. So we get to just point fingers. And So y'all were at UT together. Obviously, the seed was planted
0: and then you kind of, I mean, it wasn't until 2011 where you really kind of Went all in, and then and then in twenty thirteen, you know, obviously, Dorcel opened. But those subsequent, you know, eight years, nine years, whatever it was after college, did you just go get regular jobs? Did y'all stay in touch? And kind of was is it just kind of like, oh, maybe one day that would be a cool thing in our late twenties or early thirties, or was it like, a, we're we're gonna do this one day? We just need to meet back up and make some money and and figure it
1: out. So so I think the you know part of the romance around it was him getting to visit my you know my parents and then seeing booze served at home and right. and that was something that you know for for a west texas um kid he he hadn't seen before right so it was more uh, regular brains were being served at parties as opposed to this stuff out of unmarked bottles or you know you'd have a a weird bottle that's just the vessel for the booze right so right. um we we chatted up about um he moved to san antonio um after his grad school and then you know, it's one of those things. Just what could you do different, or what what would you do unique? And at the time, distilling in Texas was uh, pretty limited. You yep. had Tito's was a large brand, and and then there were there were a ton of um, you know wineries. Those those guys have been around for a long time and, and expanded the market. Distilling was sort of new. I think the um, uh, beer was you know doing well in the state, and um, we thought, well, this would be fun. It's there's a family component. There's a uh, uh, it's fruit. It's different. Um, And, um, and we started sort of exploring, you know, what would it take to, um, to legitimize a farmhouse operation in a major city. And, um, I think the, I think in 2009 is when we started doing a business plan because, you know, bankers said, you need a business plan and then, you know, you submit to get a loan. And then, um, and then we discovered bankers don't like to fund, um, startups. So, um, you know, we still kind of kept at it and, um, raised a little bit of money from friends and family, um, Found a bank that would lend us money, and then um, and then broke ground in uh, in February of 2013. February 2013
0: took about seven eight months to do the entire build out. You opened in December of 2013. Um, you know, I, it's it's a big difference going from you know talking to your family and things like that. And we're talking about Serbia, by the way. That's where you would go back with him uh, from talking about it and deciding you're going to do it to trying to figure all that stuff out and break ground and actually open up a craft distillery, especially when, A, it hasn't really been done that much in Texas, and, B, you've certainly never done it before. Um, what were those kind of, like, early years like and just, like, getting it off the ground, just, like, those, you know, those steps to opening, essentially?
1: It started with a no, don't do it. Right. And, um, and I should have listened. Um, How did your, but, fam- uh, how'd your <laughs> family
0: react, by the way, to the fact you said you were going to do it?
1: The, um, my grandpa, uh, who's part of the inspiration for all this, he said it's always more fun on the other side of the bar, the mm-hmm. guest side. And, um, and, you know, what does he know? But um, I should have listened. The, um, the joke was, you know, you need well, not the joke. The, the, the advice was, you know, do you have a million dollars? And, of course, I didn't have a million dollars. So, things said, well, don't do it unless you have a million dollars. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to have a million dollars. And what do you know about a million dollars? You've never seen a million dollars. Right. So, what is a million dollars just a large number that you just you know, keep you know, me dinner, from doing yeah, yeah. this? yeah i wish i had a million dollars um you know over the years we were in it way more than a million dollars but um if i didn't do this yeah <laughs> the joke is how do you get a winemaker to make a million he starts with 10 so um you know i, I think that applies to any manufacturing and beverages is, is sort of part of that discussion the um uh, i think there was a little bit of romance and i think everybody was excited my my dad and my uncle both kind of left the um uh, both went to school, and you know, college cha- careers were not bringing them to the farm or the countryside. So the idea of us doing something was sort of, you know, intriguing enough to the family. I was like, yeah, we should get behind this. So, you know, get to the, the suppliers, the manufacturers. You know, start to figure out what the logistics would look like. And I think part of it was probably entertaining to them because they thought it would never really happen yeah it's a fun thing to, yeah yeah a kid out yeah i mean i think chris's dad called it a donation when uh he right. invested so i think the you know there's a point i think in this process where you start realizing well, like this is for real now you know you're no longer just writing a business plan or pitching it to a banker yeah. or visiting an accountant it, now you have a hole in the, f- the ground which is exhilarating but also super nerve-wracking once it once it happens, or were you just excited? So we had this we bought this lot and it was perfectly fine. And then on a on February fifth, this guy comes out with this big machine and then he starts digging a hole. And at the end of the day, we had this hole in this lot. And Chris and I go, Wow, we have to fill this back up now. Yeah. And and I think that was the first sort of you know, going to the title company and close on a loan, that was oh, wow, there's a lot of paper we gotta sign. It wasn't until that hole was in the ground that you start realizing like this was fine. Right. Last night or this morning, it was and all in my head until last night. Now yeah. it's
0: like a tangible thing that I have to do. Yeah, and yeah,
1: it's big. Yeah, and um, and I think that was the first sort of realization where, you know, this um, this this project is is real. We have to figure out a way how to make it work now because the bank's going to want their money back, and I'm sure this hole can't stay in the ground forever. So, um, you know, the next six seven months of the construction sort of went really fast because you know you we blew the budget by the time. We fill the foundation. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. there's certain things yeah. that, you know, I thought it was really good with Excel sheets and, you know, we put right numbers in places. It doesn't matter what you put on paper. It doesn't it's matter. Yeah. Happen. I mean, the, the best part of the business plan is to look back and go, wow, that was really fun. That was cute. Yeah. yeah. It was cute. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, these kids had a really good time in business school. It's Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they did a great job. Um, some banker thought this, you know, it had right colors. On yeah. There. They, I don't they know. tricked
0: this guy. <laughs> They're giving him a bunch of money. Yeah. But, so, you, you did break ground. Did you have an architect? Did you have, I read that y'all were drawing, you know, schematics on we, napkins yeah, and stuff. Yeah, so
1: we got this brilliant Great idea. We, we Googled on the internet metal buildings, and the building was like 30 grand. We're like, yeah, it's easy. We, we got this in the budget. <laughs> yeah, done. The foundation was 40. So, the $30,000 metal building was yes, <laughs> the, the cheapest of part of we did. Yeah. Yeah. See, those things, you know, they're on the budget, but right. they don't always work out that way. Um, we, the first sort of realization of you can't, um, you can't wing this was um, when we, uh, we realized we were going to be the first distillery in an urban setting that was a ground-up construction okay. in all of Texas. Okay. It, was really, it was kind of bizarre because um, the folks that have come online right before we were coming online are either in existing spaces or just outside of um, municipal jurisdictions. So it's, county it's building true. departments are a little bit different. You get into a major city like San Antonio, you know, and, and we're two short blocks from the Development Services Building, so which is nice, be, yeah, I guess convenient, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that, check that wasn't a follow-up question, a yeah. <laughs> The um, we realized we we planned this uh, preliminary plan review meeting, and uh, we had a friend of ours who was a retired architect, and we drew something, and then he drafted up, and the guy that met with us asked for the, you know, the, the signed and sealed full set of plans. Okay. I didn't know what that meant, but what we brought was not it. So then he just, you know, sent us away, <laughs> you know, um, he sent us away and he said, come back when you have your plans figured this out. This was the
0: guy at development services? Correct, yeah, yeah
1: the plan reviewer. So um, so then we realized, like, this isn't about just putting a building on a foundation that then we could, you know, occupy it was um it It started with having to design the entire space and then convince the city that you know this is not a um, a fire hazard is what it you know came down to, because the still is very traditional copper pot still um, versus these um, uh, steam stills that are popular nowadays. Right. And we had to convince them that it's not a boiler because boiler laws then trigger all these other construction and building code obligations. So there was a learning curve. We couldn't afford consultants, so you know we you know we would buy the TTB CFR whatever what forty six forty seven or something to learn it forty seven. So it's like we literally picked up the regulatory guides and started browsing through, figuring out or anticipating what will what what would we have to overcome next. So you became attorneys. Okay. Well, no, okay. we uh, we just became annoying enough to the regulatory people to where we weren't going to take a no. So we just kept moving along until we got a yes, okay? And and having that having those resources um got us in a position where we could ask for them to point to where the no is and then when they couldn't, we would find a way that they would say yes.
0: So Okay, uh, and where were you sourcing? So you started to get yeses from them. Where were you kind of sourcing all
1: this equipment from? So a ton of stuff is um, well. I, th- I think everything back then was European mostly. I mean, the Chinese kind of got into that at some point, but um, all of our stuff is uh, uh, is European made. And distilling and winemaking is is just a uh, a much more readily available right. industry overseas, and and it just happened that the um, the customs Uh, rules at stateside are, those things are uh, free to import. So that's, um, I think that helped flourish the wine industry. Yeah, Yeah, that that part was really easy. I think, you know, I I know Serbian, so speaking to folks directly in Serbia was easy. There's no, you know, the English language barrier didn't exist. And then the suppliers that are German, you know, that English was readily available so you you know place orders practically via email and you know they get shipped and then they show up in houston and a truck fetches them and okay they're at your house
0: well and so the the, the brewing operation obviously came later you kind of came on board uh randy in 2013 2014 something like that but did was that in the business plan originally to have a, a brewery or
2: so i got to read the business when i came on as an owner okay yeah and and read all these things that some did happen a lot didn't happen but yeah, there there was there was part of the business plan dedicated to growing into a brewing space later down the road.
0: Okay, that's cool. And then so that eventually came on after they opened 2013. You you started talking to them in 2014, I think, and then that process really took off in like 2015.
2: Yeah, we we met as a result of um, Ryan Salts, okay. who uh, runs. I guess it's called Launch SA now. It was called yeah. Breakfast and Launch back then they're on the west side. Pretty. pretty uh, oh no no, they're at the library. Out of the yeah, library, yeah. 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 Um, pretty chance meeting I, I i don't think i've ever asked chris and boy in this i i think they were looking for somebody to come in and help get beer kick-started i had um i don't know for lack of better terms six or eight times in the course of my life decided i was going to start a brewery and right. finally got serious about it and realized you know shit this is a lot of work i need i need a, a partner you know not just not necessarily a money partner. I need somebody to do part of the work, right? Somebody to be responsible. Um, so I started looking for a partner and you know, so, so they, they were looking, I was looking, Ryan kind of put us together incidentally. And
0: so it just, yeah, here we a perfect pairing. You know, we're both looking at the same time.
2: And I'm a, I'm a highly trained, skilled brewer. I've spent 26 years in energy trading, getting prepared to make beer. Right. I, I've got a long <laughs> background in in um, academic research and, and practical like application it. in the brewing industry. Not
0: so okay. So so the place opened 5 p.m. Friday, December 13th, 2013, and like you said, it was Texas' first urban craft distillery. Obviously, the beer scene had been going on in San Antonio for a while. We had Alamo, we had Freetail. we had Ranger Creek, we had all these breweries popping up, starting in like 2008, 2009, something like that. The distilling scene in Texas was still, like you said, relatively young. There was Tito's. I've talked to Treaty Oak Distilling. I've talked to Dripping Springs Distilling. All these distilleries were kind of like, like you said, out in Dripping Springs. They weren't in municipalities. They weren't in, like, cities. So, yeah, I guess I'm kind of curious what, what the reception was like when, when you guys opened up. Where were you? Was the tasting room already open? Were people coming out and, and be, being able to taste your spirits there? Um, and, and were you in some bars and restaurants and things like that? What was What was all that like?
1: So, we, the, you know, it's funny you, you talk about the lucky moments that you really didn't influence, it just happened. The legislature was in session in 2013, right. and the law just changed effective September 1 that allowed on premise sales. That's crazy. And um, we, um, so we broke ground in February, you know, legislature, uh, I don't know what they start in March or April or something. And right. then that summer, you know, the governor signs this bill. And um, miraculously, we had anticipated um, having a bar like operation. And, um, so when, when the law changed and we ended up having to do some rezoning, uh, cleaning up cause all of a sudden we could generate revenue from sales and we're within 300 feet of both a school and a church. Things that didn't apply, Right, you know, a year earlier when we went through preliminary plan reviews, um, all of a sudden now we needed their blessing to, um, to be able to fully, you know, gen, you know, utilize the space to generate uh revenue so uh we we quickly uh got on the um uh, uh, the door knocking kind of thing with the school district and the uh and the church and just we're really blessed to have a ton of support from the community That's the um uh, i think the the idea was craft scene was was uh, mature enough to where the we weren't trying to convince anybody anything we just said hey we're you know we're working on this at the time vacant lot and um or a construction site lot really. And, um, the law changed and we'd like to be able to take advantage of it. And, uh, so, um, you know, there was that moment on that Friday night, um, that I remember standing on the patio looking in and there are all these people, a lot of which I had never seen before that simply came out to support what we were doing. And, um, and you know, we, we didn't have an employee yet. We, we had a couple of guys helping us. Um, and, um, so Friday we opened. We were open Saturday, which is a large second Saturday art walk in the neighborhood. And uh, we were trying to coincide it with that event um, the next day. And then Monday morning, well, I guess we need an employee now because we're actually open and people showed up. And now we need to figure out how to run a bar. Yeah. that Never, you know, a bar operation was not. Part of anything because the law didn't allow it, so that kind of just fell into your lap, and you were like, yeah, "Okay, the, we got to figure this part out now." Correct. Yeah, the the law changed to permit it, and and we thought there's a revenue opportunity, obviously, yeah. and ignoring it would have been silly. So for the um, for that first you know year or so, you know, there were a ton of industry folks that came through because we were we had the largest generating um, on premise uh, sales in the state. Because we were the only ones operating tasting room, and then you know Thursday, Friday, and Saturday practically operated as a bar. You just you could only drink one spirit, but we we got creative and we we showed utilization of it in a ton of different ways. So you know it looked like a bar, it it had a bar, and you know had a menu, And, um, and I think when people got over the fact that you know at the time we weren't brewing so when they couldn't order a beer then they would switch to you know some major liquor brand and then when we told them we couldn't offer that what what do you do why are you here (laughs) and it's like well remember what i told you a couple minutes ago we're a distillery blah 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 and here's what we do so fast forward six years and we're still having to do that you know Mm -hmm. you you tell them you're a brewery distillery and then they order you know some major brand yeah whatever it is and um you you tell them you can't do that because it's not made obviously here and then they you know, it's like, okay, fine, I'll just have, and then fill in another large brand, and it's uh, nothing registered. But so that still happens. I'm yeah, kind of surprised Yeah, there's, by that, there's but... different tiers in the in the alcohol space where, you know, there's some of that crisscross overlapping kind of thing, and as a brewery distillery, we don't have, um, we're a little bit more constrained legally. Okay. So um, just because you have shiny objects on the back doesn't mean you're actually making all the product on site. With mm-hmm. us, we literally, if we can't make it, we can't sell it. So, you know, we had... If you wanted beer, we had to literally make the beer. If you wanted spirit, you had to make the spirit. So um, I think there was a learning curve for the guests and us to figure out how do you address that, you know, without turning the guest off.
0: Well, so there was that aspect of it. But also you were kind of a unique distillery in that the general theme is that you were taking what? European family farmhouse The distillery. fruit thing. Yeah, the, the fruit, fruit thing. thing. Like what, that was what, mind-blowing. Yeah, you have very specific we, unique spirits that, you know, yeah, we I, I won some often. awards. Yeah, we them, yeah. won
1: some awards, and people are like, wow, this is so great. This must be amazing. You got the color out of it. Right. And you know, when you realize <laughs> what they're referring to is brandy is typically brown, right? Nothing comes out brown out of the still. So it's always clear. The colors either through the barrel aging or through some kind of food coloring, right? So we we had to convince folks that what's great about what we're making is not that it's clear, it's it's what it, you know, smells like and tastes like and, you know, what what Kinsman is. But, um, yeah, Rakia was, you know, first you had a, a weird name, Dorchel, and then you created a obscure spirit, Rakia, and it happened to be a brandy that's not brown, and, you know, it was like mind-blowing for folks. So fucks. just constantly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what could go, we're still in business. Yeah, <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah, I can't <laughs> can believe it, yeah. So
0: constantly educating the public, not only the fact that you don't have real ale beer, but you also have these spirits that they've never heard of. I wish of they were asking for real ale. At least yeah. there'd be some you know, well, camaraderie between them. they were asking
1: for yeah. in you know, other brands. You should, you should it's
0: Tito and Sprite. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay.
2: But Bud light. Oh, no, we can't do that. That's I'll just take a Bud Light. Yeah. Okay. The yeah the you're, shift you're, from you're, one you're major not, brand well, right, <laughs> a, right after we say so so right after we say we can't serve you Tito and Sprite because we have to sell oh, we can only sell what we make then they follow up with, "Well, we'll just take a Bud Light." Right? Yeah, that's uh, like, we don't make Bud Light either. <laughs> it's like, let me.
0: If we did, we wouldn't <laughs> be in this business. You need at the front door. It would, like an, be, it would be an, an, an educational an seminar before they even come up to the bar. Well, that's a whole other aspect of it, is because now you could be like, "Well, you know, if you want something like that, go down the street." But at the time, South Florida, you were kind of by yourself over there. I mean, you really paved the way. There was the Art Walk, um, which they've done amazing things over with Second Saturday and all the all the uh, Southtown art stuff. But there was that, and there was you guys, and it was pretty much it and you've kind of seen this whole you know we, we have a coffee shop over there now there's Kunsler brewing there's you know all these things that are popping up uh pizza place all, all that stuff and it's become become more of a destination uh for san antonians in general uh um, but yeah early on was it was it difficult to get people over there or were they just kind of coming in to see the new crazy unique thing
1: we literally have folks saying i didn't realize south flores goes this far south." right right yeah it's the longest, I think, street in San Antonio, it's really, it's really and it's long. like a thoroughfare that I think it changes names eventually becomes like a county road and maybe a state highway or something. But it like produce used to come up South Flores to the you know market, and um, people that will come see us, you know, will wonder when did the street get built, kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like wow, I didn't realize there's stuff down here, and that's kind of mind blowing to us,
0: you know. So when you opened in 2013 that was like December 13th, right? Then it goes into 2014. So yeah, what kind of like were people coming out Was it busy, whether you kind of, did you have to grow that customer base, you know, from person to person? How, how did that go?
1: There's a ton of hand selling, obviously from, you know, an obscure product at the time, um, side of things. The, um, there was a, there was an incredibly rich, um, art scene in the space. So it was really easy for us to, uh, to, to find camaraderie and, in, in, you know, not just on second Saturday, but, yeah. um, you know, in addition, of course, uh, Southtown in general and, and Blue Star neighborhood and, and a ton of culinary stuff that was happening on South Alamo. And so, you know, those that were, that were keyed into the scene, um, found their way really easy. You know I mean? South Flores might not be very developed in those two blocks, um, you know, between, um, the, uh, the, the heavy multifamily development up the Mm -hmm. blocks. But, um, you know, I think they, they made the trek and, um, and, and that wasn't an issue necessarily, but, um, the the long term is obviously how do you grow the you know how do you grow the island so that you know others take the uh, take that risk and and obviously um, uh, Randy and Vera from uh, from Kunsler mm-hmm. have been friends in, in in fact they were both from the same um, cohort uh, with um, uh, breakfast and Launch. Okay. and uh, and the fact that she ended up in the neighborhood was was a ton of fun because. You know, originally there were other. You know, you start this business and you start looking for a space, and then you start realizing it's not just as simple as I want that, and you get to move in kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's utilities, and you know, is the power available? Is gas available? Is water available? Is zoning right? Deal with the neighborhood.
0: The neighborhood, yeah, that's an issue. Yeah,
1: we we were we were going through zoning just as Alma was building the the brewery, and you know, there was a ton of attention on the uh, on the east side of town with that development. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we were we didn't have the resources to we wouldn't have had the resources to stick out any kind of, um, you know, objection of uh, development objection. So, you know, I remember Chris and I block walked and, and made little business cards at Kinko's so that we left people our phone number. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to, we're going to be building this. Here's what we're going to be doing. There's, you know, an upcoming zoning case. Please reach out, reach out to us. That's cool. You know, we, we definitely couldn't, um, you know, afford people getting bused in to object, you know, a, a alcohol manufacturing, 2,500 square foot building. You know what I mean? It's, right. um, so, uh, so the neighborhood embraced us and, um, you know, it helped us. There's a ton of vacant, um, properties around also. So mm-hmm. the idea of having a patio with live music, arts, you know, art vendors, um, I think all those things came naturally to the space. So it's I kind of exciting. A dream a come bit. Come
0: true, And it's not your typical type of late night bar where people are just getting yeah.
1: follower drunk, you know, it, it was, yeah, there yeah. was when, uh, you know, we had gone before city council and stuff and, you know, people would object to, you know, cans of, you know, Mickey's or something on the sidewalks. Sure, but I can sure. assure you that did not come from our place. You have to we, yeah, yeah, explain that, was, that. Yeah. That was very easy to, you know, deflect.
0: Hey guys, it's Eddie from building something out of nothing. Before I started this podcast, my mic sat in a drawer for six months before I finally got the courage to record my first episode I didn't know anything about the podcasting world, and I definitely didn't know anything about finding the right website to host my podcast. That is, until a friend told me about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more, within minutes of finishing your recording. If you're wanting to finally pull the trigger on that first podcast, follow the link in the show notes to let Buzzsprout know we sent you. You'll get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan, so it's kind of a no-brainer. Bus sprout, the easiest way to start your professional podcast. Okay, cool. So you got opened up. Reception was pretty good. Did you already have the the seven-barrel brew house installed before Randy came on, or did, did, did you come on board and then? That was part of the exercise together
1: okay. is figuring out, okay, here's what we want to do. How do we get there? And uh, and at the time, Randy had an, uh, a full-time career, so it was kind of interesting to see him juggle you know Houston and San Antonio and getting in bed with us kind of thing and and you know fast forward and we're here so I'm gonna pass it on to him and kind yeah of pass it on to him tell us all the fun time you
2: had you're up it's interesting uh, a fair amount of what's known as the high wheel which is our beer brand uh, was built on the back of a shellcom email address okay yeah So, like boy and I'm gonna I'm, I'll, I'll cut to the chase tell you the truth I don't think there's any statute of limitations on that one. So I'm, I'm probably okay. Um, yeah, I, I worked for Shell for 26 years. I have ended my career the last 13 years as a, um, a structured nat- natural gas trader. Okay. Um, high stress. Um, fortunately it's a standard kind of eight to five ish, seven to four ish kind of hours. So, um, I was lucky enough to get to do that from home in San Antonio. My wife's a professor here in town. So a couple of days a week, I traveled back, I sat on the trade floor and had a couple of nights a week that had nothing to do. So I literally sat on the front porch of the Gingerman with my smartphone and, you know, did all kinds of research and bugged the shit out of Boyan, yeah. you know, about this and that. And, and um, but had a lot of time to think. So um, thought through kind of how that wanted to, wanted to come together. And every week I'd come back, we'd sit down, we'd, cuss and discuss you know all the ideas and we finally settled on a seven seven barrel brew house with the concept of uh, growing into that full capacity on premise Uh, seven barrels three three seven barrel fermenters we could make somewhere in the order of about three to 500 barrels a, it's a year good
0: amount of beer You're and you know
2: we foresaw that we were going to have people just lining up down south Florida, sure. you know to get the latest beer right. release right because right. that's I what mean, they do in san diego and that's what and happened. san antonio has a sand in front of it so it must be similar right right um so we settled on seven barrel brew house um immediately well, not immediately but within the first few months kicked off um a distribution campaign of the beer to to quote unquote fill excess capacity until we could grow into it okay and uh, fast forward now coming on four years for the beer operations um we were the fastest growing brewery last year on the back of distribution not on the back of on-premise sales um we uh, we have somewhere between 100 and 125 accounts around town um two-thirds again more than that tap handles um our first account was uh you know we have Three kind of first accounts, Luke, which is closed, mm-hmm. but John Russ carried carried us with him um, to Clementine, Liberty Bar, and Francis Bogside. We still have those three accounts. Yeah, um, that's kind of it's kind of what we do. We we um, get in tight with people and don't ever go away. Who was um, who
0: was selling the beer? Were you going around? The bar? Uh, to
2: start with, it was him and me, and and um, I don't remember when we hired Katie, um, but Katie well, she made, retired. Katie McKee retired as, as bar manager at Liberty Bar, which happened to be oh, our okay. account. Um, she did not drink beer, did not like beer, but loved Kinsman and loved what we did. And so we hired her as a beer salesperson. Okay. Beer and, yes. beer and kin, Kinsman. But um, yeah, she, she's been responsible for placing us at a, at a lot of places. And um, if you've met her, she's um, a white haired, firecracker, go getter, talk your ear off. Great person. You
0: know, so. so the business model includes, obviously, you said you were the fastest growing uh, brewery in 2018. You have about 125 accounts. You said that's in town? Yeah, we've got a
2: few accounts out of town. Uh, we're not really a out-of-town brewery. Really? Uh, oh. We've got a we've got a relationship with the Rustic Group, so we've supported them outside of San Antonio. Okay.
0: So very specific instances yeah. you'll go out of and town. Then, yeah.
2: And then we've got one craft beer bar that um, I think, for lack of better terms, is maybe a little bit like, the Hoppy Monk. Um, not exactly like it. Where, but where is that at? Hoppy Monk is up on the north side well, of Well, I know Hoppy but You said there was oh, one. Oh, yeah. It's called Grain to Glass. It's in McAllen. Okay. And
0: okay. they actually
2: have a cartage permit. So they come and pick our beer up. Okay. Which is a fantastic cool. thing. And they're, they're, are you in kegs or is it just... Kegs only until this past September 1st um, when the law changed allowing beer-to-go sales to happen at our right, brewery.
0: That just happened. We
2: decided to kind of unleash Betty in a can. Uh, we've got... Any of the rest of our beers, you can come in and get via a growler fill, but you can take Betty home. So this was pack.
0: due to the new legislation that went through? It was. Okay, and, yeah, that was and, a big deal for the brewing community as a as a whole. That was, you know, people really and, excited about that.
2: And the cans will arrive on the market somewhere. Um, we're still talking about what that's going to look like, so we don't exactly have that business plan wrapped up. Um, but as with anything in the beer business, volume is key to controlling costs. Uh, we don't... I don't think it today at least we don't anticipate Betty in a can being on H E B shelves or in every bar in town, but it will show up in some limited fashion throughout town.
0: And are you contracting out the canning right now or are y'all doing that in-house? Yeah, American that... American canning out of Austin does it for us. Okay, very cool. And so so talk about the style of beers that y'all y'all brew when you when you came on board. What was like the general idea? Like, okay, you're gonna come on. Here are the beers that are on the market right now. This is what we want to do, and here's our staples. Like, obviously, the High Wheel Betty is, like, your biggest seller. Um, I see it everywhere I go. What what else do you have going on uh, yeah, in terms of year-round?
2: So I've I've been a home brewer for 23 years. Cool. Uh, won, won a few medals back when I was younger and serious about it. I've been an interesting – I'm going to use the word interesting instead of craft. I've been an interesting beer drinker for longer than that. And I say interesting instead of craft because when I started drinking beer, Newcastle and Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was the fancy stuff on the market, right? There was no craft. It was Sierra Nevada, Sam Adams, and a whole bunch of imports. Um, Fast forward, we've got this explosion of craft, which is a fantastic thing because you can get empanadas in your beer. You can get tulip (laughs) flowers in your beer. (laughs) You know, and, you know, that's you'll get in the discussion in a moment. That's not what we're about, but that is a cool thing about the industry. Um, There is a lot of creativity and you've got some styles like a black IPA or a peanut butter chocolate stout that have kind of become recognized because of people jumping out and putting tulip flowers in beer, right? Um, So that's a cool thing about craft. To me as a beer drinker, when craft really started invading the bars, imports went away. And there's so much rich history in Smittix Red Ale, in Pilsner Urkel, in Erdinger Weiss Beer, you know, all of these great stalwart brands that define the styles that we brew as brewers in America now because they've been brewing them for 300, 400, 600 years. So to me, it kind of, it kind of made sense both from what's available on the market and from what I enjoy doing when we open the brewery to focus on classic styles. So um, more specific, we focus on classic styles from famous brewing regions. So we haven't made a rice beer from Japan yet. Okay. Um, That would be a classic style, but we haven't done that. Um, Our core set of beers kind of Kind of grabs all of the famous places that are famous for making ales so we've got uh, a hefe called sa hefe that's a traditional bavarian style hefeweizen the betty which is a traditional Kolsch style ale we've got uh, the cocardi, which is a um, which some people say cock hardy um, named after the walloon flag in belgium uh, it's a traditional belgian farmhouse style saison and we've got a, a robust porter which kind of is between England and U.S., and then we round that out with a West Coast-style IPA. So it's your version of these famous styles? Yeah, it's paying homage to kind of how we got to where we are today. And
0: do you do any, years. like, rotating? So you have, like, kind of those year-rounds that you do. Do you have any, like, rotating
2: fit- yeah, funky we, seasonals that you do? Yeah, we've got a, we've got an Irish Red Ale that stays on tap at our place year-round but gets distributed for St. Patty's Day. Cool. And then we've got three other taps that, um, that continually rotate. So right now we've got an American Pale Ale on, we've got a Czech style Pilsner on, and we've got a Dunkelweizen which was released for Oktoberfest. Awesome! And have y'all seen like
0: you know a lot of people coming in strictly for the beers or strictly for the spirits or is it just kind of like they're coming for the brand Dortchel in
2: general? It's I would say a mixture. Okay. Um, we still almost six years into Dortchel and four years into the combination of beer and, and spirit. We still have a lot of people in town that don't know who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of people that know who we are, but don't know who we are. They'll say, "Oh, wow, I, I love that Betty," but I've never heard of Dorchel. Um, and you were saying, you know, the, the, is or, there some
0: confusion with High Wheel and Dorchel? And you know, even I asked you earlier. I was curious yeah. if High Wheel was the name of the brewery, but it's <laughs> it's all with underneath the umbrella of Dorchel, correct? And you have your spirits side, and then your brewery side
2: yeah so we're we're dorschel distilling and brewing um similar to procter and gamble johnson johnson that right was the idea, these, are, yeah. these are very these are very sc johnson company you know these are very respectable companies that have created a brand a, a, a company umbrella for a, a series of brands so we thought hey we'll do this you know the the craft industry just you know, spirit and beer will be ready for this, right? So, Dortchel Distilling and Brewing is us. It it defines our space. It's, it's who we are. It's our company. Uh, we make two products. We make beer and spirits. Beer is um, the High Wheel brand, and Kinsman is the spirit brand. Very simple, right? Yeah. So I mean, you, you explain cannot, it that way, it's, it's pretty simple, yeah. So, if you want to go to the High Wheel Brewery, if you're talking from a company, you can't do that. It doesn't exist. Um, you can go to the place where High Will is brewed. That's Dorchel.
0: Okay, very cool. And, I mean, you've been receiving awards. You had mentioned me earlier you got a gold in 2018, like a brewery award. What was that about? We've gotten two brewery awards. Okay. Uh,
2: one was the fastest-growing brewery in okay. 2018. Uh, we just got our first medal for a beer. We got a bronze at the L.A. International Beer Competition. That was this year Cool. Uh, for the Saison and the the spirits were getting awards too earlier on like twenty
1: fourteen right? We needed some uh tasting notes, so uh friends at Ranger Creek uh recommended a competition in Chicago. that's cool and um you know you submit something six months later you hear back and um we forgot we had ever submitted it, and uh it came out of the gate and it was uh it was America's highest rated brandy. We got beat out by huh. some uh some European brandy distillery, so we we wanted to make sure we 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 don't have to lay down and take it that way so we uh we submitted next year. The next harvest uh, we submitted to another competition and ended up being a, a best in category. It was, uh, it was the world's highest rated brandy non-cognac. So, uh, you know, we got um, Playboy wrote about it, Wine enthusiasts. I mean, there was, you know, there was a ton of, uh, ton of recognition. You know, you can't ship products. You can't, you know, the distribution component didn't necessarily get affected. But um, it was kind of fun to see people recognizing um, this, you know, obscure thing out of south yeah, side I, of San Antonio. I think that's
0: cool. And it gives you a little bit of name recognition and a little bit of, uh, high profile as, as yeah, well. The,
1: yeah. They were able to make some really co- cool visuals and stuff that these large magazines have access to that we have since, um, you know, adopted to, uh, you know, showcase and share. So, um, yeah, that was, that was, kind of exciting. We, you know, the, the truth is we didn't invent the wheel. You know, the, the product has been around for a while. The recipe has been around. It's hundred percent apricot mash bill. There's not a secret to it, but, um, the, um, it, it was kind of fun to, you know, to remind people that, you know, we won in 2014, which was, you know, a, the same year we practically opened, right? December is when we opened, right, not cool. because, you know, we got lucky, but because we just happened to focus on a very traditional approach to distilling and, um, and focus on quality and folks in that scene just recognized it. So that's cool.
0: So in addition to having the tasting room and doing your you know brewing and distilling, you all, you have a really cool space for anybody that hasn't been down there. And you all host a kind of myriad of events. You're always kind of doing something. You've had chef-inspired events we were talking about earlier. And recently,
1: though, I want to talk about your Oktoberfest, where you had... <laughs> so you oh. wanted to <laughs> essentially beat the we had three. Hold on. We have three Oktoberfest right, yeah. events. You're talking about the middle one, I'm guessing. Yeah, you're talking about the sausage.
0: The, the, yeah, yeah. You know which one I'm talking about. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> You wanted to break the record for the world, or the, the Texas longest yes. sausage, is that correct? Yes, that the is The record true. was set in Dallas by Chef Brian Lusher for, it was 249 foot length. You wanted to go, the goal was kind of go, to go 300 feet. You ended up going 684
1: feet. I and mean, everything's bigger in Texas, right? What, in South Texas so, in particular. Yeah, so what's what, just what inspired, well, that. what goofy shit happened to make us want to do that? Um, the, um, so we really wanted to get like, the world's longest thing, right? But right. then we like Googled and what is it? Yep. Yeah, it's like miles. So it's insane. Yeah. It's yeah, it's stupid. And um, the the thing is they're all you know almost like state sponsored and funny enough, it's from the Balkans. So there's a there's sausage makers out there that, you know, collaborate with, you know, their governments for like Guinness recognitions. And you know, these state-owned companies create these mile-long sausages so um we thought well we can't get the world's longest so um let's look closer to home and it turned out there's this guy in Dallas who had a who had set the record with 249 feet like well we got to beat that and um for years we've been talking about it I mean at least three years since the very first Oktoberfest we hosted and there was always a missing link (laughs) and the link was in the casing because you know hogs don't come in 300 foot long intestines so um and it turned out this guy ends up at at the bar and really digs our beer. And we start chit-chatting. And one thing leads to another. I ask what he does. And he's, you know, a VP of a casing company. I realize that's how, you know. So anyway you were the guy that was missing this whole time, right? So uh, we have a ton of chefs that we work with and that dig what we do. And, um, you know, there's there's a large retailer in this in the city, HEB, you might have heard of them, and their culinary team really digs what we do. So it was kind of fun to get a couple of chefs to um, work with us and figure out, okay, well, so now we've got this idea of this casing thing, and um, we want to stuff it with the sausage, and we want to try to break this record. And um, all the elements came together right down the street from us. There's a, a multi-generational um, uh, meat purveyor. Um, Laxon's been making sausages since the 30s. And it's just, we um, you know, put together a couple of chefs, the casing guy, the sausage company, and uh, we set the goal of 300 feet. And um, the day of the event, the uh, staff at Laxon just kept stuffing the casings <laughs> and uh, stop they yeah, ran out stuff. of meat yeah. at 6 at uh, 680 oh, wow. 84 feet or something That's and then insane. we had to build an oven that what is that the official number it was it 680 uh, 684 yep. uh,
2: the, number, feet. the number got thrown around in several
0: different well speak. there's there's cooked and uncooked yes I, we I never measured it uncooked. after
1: cooking right. part we uh we we did the official measurement um you know the day of the filling and uh, or the stuffing and then cooked it the next day in this. So you cook oven. it in an, in an oven. So we it what, generates heat from top and bottom. So it's okay. an oven. Um, okay. We uh, <laughs> um, we we found some metal purveyors that had a you know the right materials, a perforated um, drawer, practically that we then uh, forklifted into. I mean, how are you going to lift three hundred ninety four point five pounds of pork and beef blend um we happen to have a forklift so um you, you know there's and there's a welder across the street and so you know there's a, a kitchen up you know h-e-b's got a kitchen up the road and laxon's has got a kitchen a, down a the road party, and right? it was a block so, party yeah, it, was helping yeah. It, it made perfect sense we right. cooked you know 700 feet of sausage on the street and um we got to donate uh, all the proceeds from it to uh, a really fun uh, nonprofit cool. that works with kids here. so in town. it was worth it ultimately yeah absolutely yeah. i mean it's you know, we, I listened to a, a webinar on events and breweries and, you know, thinking outside the box. And, you know, we thought outside the box and then had to make a box to fit it into. So um, literally, so it was kind of interesting to see a ton of folks in the community come together for, you know, taking pictures of a 700-foot link of sausage that just kept wrapping on itself. So, um, and then the, some of it got donated for a, a homeless feed, you know, feed the homeless program. So, Did you sell it all?
2: Or, no, oh, the so part that was that, donated.
1: Okay. Kind of. Yeah, there is no more sausage. Okay. I think some folks took some plates home. Uh, there was a really fun um, uh, uh, potato salad that went with it and some sauce. I mean, it, you know, it, it was actually a really fun event. It, it was kind of cool.
0: That's cool. So, I mean, obviously, you just had been growing steadily since 2013 when you opened your doors. You've had a brewery. Texas' fastest-growing brewery in 2018. What are your like, kind of like day-to-day roles as owner operators of this business? Are you doing the same things you were doing back in 2013? Still just kind of grinding away and distilling every day and brewing every day, or is it kind of? Are you able to take a step
2: back a little bit? Like, what? What's it like to be a owner operator of Dorchall? So 26, 26 years I was in corporate America. Right. Cool. I went. To, I went to work. I sat in the same desk chair. I had a, a set roles and responsibilities. There was a hierarchy above and below me. Um, owning a small business, whether it be distilling or brewing or anything else, there are so many hats that I wear. And with it being brewing oriented, most of those hats are cleaning. Um, but there's we, we've had um, trademark disputes. We've had um, issues with um, trying to get label approval. We have branding work to do to design bottles and cans, and we've got marketing work and and product placement work to do to try to define how we're going to sell our product. We're a a manufacturing concern, so there's that component. Uh, We're a food manufacturing concern, you know, beverage, so there's the cleanliness issue. We run a bar. We have employees. So, I mean, you can just kind of, we live in a neighborhood or we work in a neighborhood, so there's community impact so yeah it's no day is the same
0: are you having fun absolutely that's awesome so when y'all aren't working and you get a chance to hang out maybe for a second where do you do y'all live in the Southtown area where do you get to where do you like to go around town do you have other breweries or distilleries or bars or restaurant chefs you want to give a shout out to or do y'all just hang out at
2: home with your not really a time when we're not working yeah yeah i um it, it took me probably three or three and a half years into this. Um, I try not to do anything on Sundays. Mm-hmm. That generally means that I get up and spend three or four hours right. working on recipes and doing label approvals and planning the next two weeks and that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, and I, I live in the neighborhood. I'm three blocks from, from Dorchel. Cool. Um Chris and Boyan live a little further away, but inside the loop. Um, but we really live at Dorchill. I'm... Um, I'm 31 years, she'll kill me. I'm 31 years married, I think. <laughs> Maybe 32. Um, I've got a new marriage. It's with Dorchell, and um, right. the two don't always go together. They don't always work. <laughs> From a time <laughs> commitment <laughs> perspective.
0: So That's cool. Um, so y'all opened, like we said, in 2013. The San Antonio beer scene and all that kind of really got going, like we said, in 2008. Um, now I feel like there's just... Tons of places that people in San Antonio can go to have like a good beer and a good spirit. What, what do you what do you think about just the San Antonio beer scene and cra- like craft distilling scene right now? And um, how do you feel about your the contribution that you made to the industry here in San Antonio? <laughs>
2: it is it is great. Um, part of part of what I enjoy about being part of the brewing community, whether it be in San Antonio or anything, is being part of a community. Yeah. So um, you're not ever going to hear me talk bad about anybody. There there are some. I don't think that necessarily play in the sandbox well within San Antonio. And there are some people that make some fantastic beer and there are some people that don't make some fantastic beer. Um, But you're not going to ever hear names come out of hopefully anybody at Dorchel San Antonio from a, from a beer community perspective, I still think has some room to grow. Okay. Um, When, um, when we came on the market with classic styles and when Weathered Souls came on the market with hazy IPAs, everybody got super excited about that. And those two things are things that San Diego and Michigan and Vermont got super excited about 15 years ago. Right. So uh, I still think we have a lot of room to grow our our education to the beer consumer and um and I, I see that happening as more brewers, more breweries are opening up. I also see that happening as the demographics of San Antonio are changing. Uh, okay. people from the burbs are moving in, people from out of state are moving in, uh, things of that nature. So you're
0: still getting a lot of new customers that have never heard of you coming in for the first time, things like that. that yeah, happens abso- often? absolutely. Yeah, that's
2: cool. That's a good sign. So Southtown, yeah. Southtown's growing a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, I live in the neighborhood. I, ironically we signed the papers on the house a few days before i met chris and boyan and it happens to be three blocks from dorschel so That's awesome fantastic but when we signed the papers on the house uh we're on clay street there was very very little new construction or old construction that had been renovated right and now there's there's a project down the street from El forno there's four projects and another one under construction on yeah. clay there's one on fest there's discussions of one on la chapelle that there's you know there's tons of stuff there. going up everywhere you know
0: y'all yeah. are about to become a little uh it's going to be a little microbrewery hub over there with those opening up yeah um, i'm not sure what the timeline on that is there any time now okay so them Kunzler, y'all i mean it's that's awesome that's yeah. really really cool do you have anything you wanted to say about just the state of the kind of the, oh, scene? the san antonio yes
1: yeah. i'd um you know the state is very rich with uh with you know both uh product and and um influx of folks from outside whether it's from you know across the world or, or across the country but the uh, the san antonio scene is in, incredibly boomed over the last you know five six seven years and and to be part of that was uh you know just a you know perfect uh, chance a perfect chance for us to showcase you know what's um what we can do and and how that fits in the bigger picture you know people ask us you know why san antonio or you know why particular the neighborhood and you know obviously we didn't do any market research to determine that up. Uh, an unaged brandy needs to be made on the near South side of San Antonio. Um, we just, you know, it's, it's a hometown and it's a great neighborhood to be part of. And um, we, you know, put, put our flag down um, six, seven, eight years ago now. And, um, you know, we'll continue to grow with the, with the area and getting into Houston or getting into Dallas with a product. And we tell folks where we're at, it's, you know, it blows their minds too. Cause yeah. you know, they think of San Antonio and you know, for most folks, it's Alamo and, and uh, the Riverwalk and, there's a there's a ton of transitioning um, areas that have just boomed on the culinary scene, and it's it's a great time to be in San Antonio. That's a Really that's exciting sure.
0: time to be in San Antonio. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, we had some guests the other day from uh, that come in from California, North Carolina, that met in San Antonio. They do like a family reunion, and they were just blown away because mm-hmm. you know they had been here 20 years ago, and you know San Antonio five years ago was not the same as it is today. And yep. you know that just means in five more years, you know how much how much cooler will it be? So yeah, it's exciting. Um,
0: we have a lot of Potential entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast, uh, maybe they want to open up their own brewery one day or their own distillery. If you could give someone a piece of advice, maybe maybe on the distilling side and just starting a business, and then maybe on the brewing side, um, what 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 would you say to someone that wants to venture into that world?
1: Get the million dollars. Okay. Get the, get the so million same, dollars. Same advice for you, Grandpa. Okay. Yeah, don't ignore the ninety-year-old grandpa. Right. Yeah, I always right. I
0: always <laughs> tell people to get a million dollars. Yeah. You can
1: do it i don't even know what yeah million dollars is nothing nowadays right but um you know if um if you're willing to give it your all and and you know at the end of the day if you're miserable and exhausted and you're still in it to win it then you know your heart's in the right place if um you know if you know, there are folks that i think probably kick you know hit it out of the ballpark and have home runs on their first projects and yeah. you know they talk about what a great time they're having and you know somebody else is running the space and they just go do podcasts but um the, uh, this is the t- first time he and I are just getting to hang out and not, not have to, uh, That's awesome, yeah. you know, literally be diving into some nitty gritty detail that, you know, has to be resolved. So the, um, the truth is, yeah, it's in the middle of the night. If, you know, if you're not thinking about it or worrying about it or, you know, trying to find ways how to make it better or, um, you know, share the word with somebody else, then you're probably, you know, better off working for somebody else kind of thing. And, yeah. and if you've got a product that you're behind hundred percent and, you know, you treat it like your kid and. You don't want to make sure you see it grow. And I was at a restaurant last night and somebody at the table next to me ordered, you know, our Betty. And I looked at the person I was sitting with. I was like, wow, that is really cool. I don't know them. The, um, you know, it wasn't them just ordering it cause they knew me and they so felt that, obligated. That, that feeling doesn't go away. You <laughs> no, you it doesn't. I mean, I, yeah. you know, it's funny. I had, uh, when Kinsman was starting out, I was in Houston trying to peddle it and they've got a great culinary scene and I walked into a bar and this gal is the bartender and she has it and she's raving about it and I'm just blown away. And this guy to the corner says, that's my product. And I look at it. I was like, no, it's not. It's mine. You know, who are you? <laughs> and he turns out he's with a distributor cause the state okay. laws, yeah. you know, make three tier distribution thing necessary. So, you know, here's this rep for this really large company who has it in his portfolio and he actually knew about Kinsman, right? And, you this is a very large distributor whose brands are, you know, multi-billion-dollar national companies, mm-hmm. and he knew kinsman, and this bartender carried it at the store. So, you know, those those days never end. You know, you you get blown away when you see it on social media. Somebody tag us; they've got a cocktail on the menu with our product. That's and, cool, yeah. You know, part of that three-tier distribution makes it difficult and to sometimes connect with accounts because you're, you know, one or two removed. But, um, you know, that feeling of of satisfaction that somebody else is, dig- is digging what you're doing, and and you know, they're they're sharing it with their guests is a incredible reward.
0: A lot of times when you're going through all the, the stressful things and putting out buyers and things like that, you kind of forget why you started it to begin with. It, that can happen. So you see stuff like that and it kind of reminds you. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice?
2: Yeah, I, I'll echo what Boyan said. I was at um, Burleson Yard is a place that's carried our beer. For time. And if you've been there, it's a a square bar, you can sit at the bar on the inside and look outside, or you can walk up to the bar on the outside and look inside. Um, so I'm there one night by myself. That brings up another point. One of the great things about owning a brewery is you get to make the beer, not get paid for doing that because you're an owner, and then go out and spend your own money to right. buy your beer back. <laughs> right. Right. And if they carry your beer, you pretty much have to drink your beer. You know, you, you might want that really, really sexy IPA that's only available for two weeks. It came from Kalamazoo, Michigan, but if your beer's on tap, you're going to pay six dollars for a pint of your beer. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm at Burleson. I'm looking across the bar, and these two middle-aged females walk up, and you can tell they are first time there. There's this big tap wall. They don't know what to order. The waitress bartender um, suggest, um, a Betty and the first lady tastes it and her face lights up and she says, I love it. I'll take one. And that's definitely why I'm in this business. Um, I would encourage any of the potential entrepreneurs out there that want to get into the brewing business. If that's not what you're in the business for, um, don't get into it. Um, you need to be passionate enough about doing this that when you wake up at three in the morning worried about the current batch of beer or where you're going to get the next five accounts to keep the beer flowing at the right rate or you're going to get the money to buy the next tank to keep demand going Um, or if you are not super excited about spending 80 percent of a 14-hour day cleaning including mold off the floor um, you know you've got to be passionate about what you're doing and why you're doing it in order to get into that level of the weeds um so yeah that that would be my first piece of advice the other piece of advice and i think this is part of what makes Dorchel successful is um any business like this brewing distilling either one if you're going to grow and if if you're going to produce a product that's good you're going to grow you've got to continually funnel money into it um Part of what I think makes us successful is we're able to continue to funnel money back into the company because the three of us are not required. You know, we don't have to take a salary from the business in order to exist. Um, And I I think if you. Yeah, Yeah. it's in in short, get get some money or keep it. Keep a day job, Um, which the day job then factors back into the 14 hour day. Right. So how do you find time for that? But um, if you're if you're having to pull thirty or fifty or seventy thousand dollars a year out of the business to to live on, um, you're probably not going to make it the first couple of years. And you're if you do make it the first couple of years, there's a good chance you're not going to get to where you want to go as far as size and community impact, at least in in any type of near future. So yeah, don't take any money <laughs> and be passionate. And really
0: don't start a business like this with the goal of just being rich because that there's better ways, yeah. there's easier ways to do it.
2: Yeah. If you, so St. Arnold's, right? If if I were to ask you a show of hands, what's the most successful craft brewery in Texas outside of Carbok, because they sold out and went to the hills, right? Yeah, they're gone. Um, St. Arnold's would, would probably come to mind. Might not be your answer, but it'd probably come to mind. Um, Brock's a great guy. Um, I don't have any idea what he makes. I would I would fall down if it was a six digit salary. Wow. So, you know.
0: Yeah. So that that's your answer. Yeah. That tells you everything you need to know. Um, well guys, boy and Randy, I really appreciate y'all coming on, doing our first live podcast for San Antonio Startup Week. Thank you, audience, for coming out and hanging out. Thank you, Game Day Media, for putting this on and recording it. Thank thank you guys and this was a lot of fun. Thanks. Good. listening to building something out of nothing if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast you can email me at ed that's ed6238 at gmail.com as always, you can visit either one of our locations seven days a week. Our roastery and first location is over at Warehouse 5 at 1333 Buena Vista Street. If you'd like to serve Shotgun House coffee roasters in your restaurant, cafe, or office, shoot us a quick email at holders at shotgunhouseroasters.com or contact me anytime at 254-913-9031. Our intro music is provided by the Delicate Boys from Austin Texas. You can find this song and their entire album on Spotify. Thanks.